All right, if you have a Bible, I would encourage you to turn to our first scripture reading this morning, which comes from the Old Testament book of Micah. Uh, We've been pairing uh, this Christmas season the New Testament uh, sermon series with Old Testament readings that tell you about the birth of Jesus to come. Uh, Today's is very, very pertinent to our sermon topic, as you'll see uh, during the reading. This is the word of the Lord. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel, and he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. And now from the New Testament, our sermon text is Luke chapter 2, verses 1 to 7. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God endures forever. Amen. This Christmas, we've been looking at the story of Jesus' birth in Luke, focusing on the humility of it all, the lowliness. I call it exalted lowliness, because God chooses to bring exaltation to his son by first sending him into humility, into lowliness. Well, this is the heart of the whole series this morning, because here we finally read the actual account of the actual birth of Jesus. He is born here, and he is famously laid in a manger in Bethlehem. Well, I think we have to admit, even though this story is very familiar, no doubt you've heard it read before, even if it's just on um, uh, the uh, Peanuts Christmas with uh, Charlie Brown, you know, Linus reads this out. Even if it's just there, you've heard it read. And yet, if we admit it, there are some surprises in the story. Like if you and I got the assignment of writing a story from scratch, how do you think the Son of God, if he were born as a man, how do you think he'd be born? Would you write it like this? Uh, Wouldn't there be some different details here? You know, wouldn't you want him to be born in more outward glory, maybe in a higher position, a more wealthy manner, a more outwardly amazing manner than this? Let's jump right in this morning because there are three things about Jesus' birth here that are really humble, really lowly. 
more than ordinarily lowly. And each of them provides us with some great benefit as believers. And I want to talk you through that this morning. If you look at your bulletin, here are the three lowly things. Uh, First of all, there is a world taxed. Second of all, there is a ruler from Bethlehem. And last of all, there is a baby in a manger. Y'all want to hear about it? First of all, the world taxed. Uh, There in verses 1 through 3, we see the context of Jesus' birth. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that the whole world should be registered. Uh, The old King James Version translates it, a decree went out that the whole world should be taxed. And I think the old uh, translators got it right there. The reason for the registration, the reason for the census was pretty obvious. Uh, Caesar was trying to figure out how much he could milk out of his people, in Palestine especially. Uh, Caesar was a great king. He was one of the first rulers of Rome to go by the title Augustus. Uh, There would be a few others. Uh, The name Augustus means great. And he was great. He was strong, but he wasn't all that good. You know, you can be one without the other. You can be a great person, very strong, very powerful, but not be very good, not have good character. And that was Caesar. Uh, He did not treat the people under his domain very kindly. Uh, In fact, he was known for exorbitant taxes. And even though people were taxed at high rates, if they were not Roman citizens, they received very little benefit for their taxes. There was all taxation and no representation. My fellow Americans... That is not the way it should be done. Amen? With taxation should come representation. But Caesar did not subscribe to the U.S. Constitution, sadly. Uh, He ruled in a far more stringent way, especially over places like Israel. He didn't think very much of Israel or the people in it. He squeezed everything out of them, but he did not give them any of the blessing or any of the benefit. This census was all about him showing his domination. And so everybody had to pick up their lives and go to wherever it was their ancestral hometown was. In this case, it was Joseph going down to Bethlehem, about 100 miles from Nazareth to Bethlehem, to be registered there so that Caesar and Quirinius, his under sort of tax collector, governor guy, could find out exactly how much he could charge them. And it was in that context that God chose his son to enter the world. Now, this is important. The taxation of Israel by Caesar Augustus was not merely an economic problem or a political problem. Because it was Israel, it was a spiritual problem. Hear me out. In the book of Deuteronomy chapter 28, Moses, 1,400 years before Christ was born, told the people of Israel, he warned them, If you do not obey and you do not show your gratitude for my grace by keeping the covenant, the following things will happen. A foreign king will take over the land and will oppress you and will abuse you and will tax you and will rip away your rights and eventually will even kick you out of the land and take it over altogether. Replace you with other people. 
That was God's word 1,400 years before this. All throughout the Old Testament story, any time a foreign leader had the throne in Israel, it meant God's people were under his judgment for their sins. Every time. In fact, this past week I read another place in the Old Testament, in Second Chronicles, in my own personal Bible reading. And I had forgotten about this phrase, but a prophet is sent to King Asa to say to the people of Israel, if you are faithful to God, he will be faithful to you. But catch this, if you forsake him, he will forsake you. Meaning, he will judge you, he will discipline you. And part of the way he'll do that is he'll rip the kingdom away from God's people and he'll give it to somebody else who's unworthy of it. And that person will mistreat you. The world here Israel here was being taxed, not just in a material sense, not just in a political sense, in a spiritual sense. They were tasting the consequences of their disobedience to God. And yet the Son of God was born as if he also had disobeyed. Jesus did not come into this world to be treated as he deserved. Had he been born into this world to be treated as he deserved, he would have been born in a palace. He would have been born outside of the taxation. Because he, did not, he was not an unfaithful Israelite. He obeyed God every single moment of his life. And yet, he willingly chose to be sent into a situation where he would have to taste God's judgment, God's discipline, God's wrath against God's people as if he had obeyed right along with us. And herein, y'all, is the very heart of the gospel itself. That Jesus, though he's holy, the Bible says, though he's harmless, though he's separate from sinners and undefiled by sin, yet came in the likeness of sinful flesh. And he came for sin. In fact, Paul goes so far as to say he became sin for us. So that him tasting the punishment of sin we would not have to taste it. The world, y'all, is taxed, and it's not just by Caesars, and it's not just by Uncle Sam's of the world. We are taxed by our sin and the punishment that our sin deserves from God himself. And praise be the Lord, when Jesus was born, he did not count himself above and beyond that. He went right down into the muck with us, right down into the mud to pay the tax. Now, think about this. When you were a kid, were you ever at any time lumped with the bad kids, even when you were innocent? Ever have that experience at school or at home? You were in the wrong place at the wrong time, and there you go. You got in trouble. You didn't do anything, but those people around you did, and then there it is. You're going to the office with them. How does that feel? It's the worst, isn't it? How do you react when that happens? Everything in you is yelling, I didn't do it. It's not me. It's them, not me. I'm not them. Like the, everything in us wants to separate ourselves from the guilty when we're not guilty. 
Another example of that is I've, I've been in, into prisons numerous times in my life, uh, but either to teach the Bible or to visit with prisoners. And in the little visiting room, all the guests come in and they're sitting around eating and talking with the prisoners, meeting with their loved ones, etc. Or in the little chapel, we're doing something like this. The prisoners are there, we're there, and everything's great. But the moment that whistle goes out and it's time for them to line back up, you know what I've never seen? I've never seen one of the guests line up with the prisoners. I've never seen them. As much as they love their prisoner that they're coming to visit, I've never seen them want to take off their street clothes and put on the prison clothes and line up and go through security back into the prison with them. Because everything within us wants to avoid association with guilt that is not ours. And yet, think about this. The Son of God had zero guilt. And yet, the manner of his birth shows that he came to put on our prison clothes. He puts on the prison clothes that human beings deserve to wear. So that we might be set free. Now, I don't know what you think your biggest problem in life is this morning. But if you think it's material and circumstantial or political or, or economic or whatever, if you think it's any of those things, I encourage you to rethink it. There's a deeper problem in your life, in my life too. It is that we by nature are at odds with our maker and therefore he is at odds with us. The great preacher George Whitfield uh, during the colonial period often preached outside and one day he was preaching to a very large crowd and he said, has anyone ever heard the beast of the forest snarl at them? And everybody's like, yes, we have. It's terrifying. And he asked, do you know why the beast snarls at you? Why, Reverend Whitfield? Because it knows that you have a quarrel with its maker. <laughs> and you know that's true. We all inhabit a world taxed by sin. And even nature itself bears witness against us. And yet, glory be to God, he sent his perfect, holy, pure son to be born into a taxed world. Beasts and all. To set free the prisoner. To unloose the chains, to cleanse the dirty. That's your greatest problem. And y'all, it is not a problem that you can solve. Only he can. Only he can. The one who is not worthy of taxation, willingly being taxed for our sins. That's the first thing we see. A world taxed. But secondly, I want you to see a ruler from Bethlehem. Look there at verses 4 to 6. It makes a big deal about this, that Jesus was born while Mary and Joseph were visiting Bethlehem. Remember, they, weren't, they didn't live there even though it was their ancestral homeland. Verse 4, they went there because of the registration, because of the census. Joseph went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, the city of David, which is called Bethlehem. And while they were there, verse 6, the time came for her to give birth. You see how he's emphasizing it. It just so happened, seemingly randomly, although not random, 
The time for her to give birth happened while they were staying temporarily in Bethlehem. And there's a lot of meaning in that if you understand the whole Bible history of Bethlehem. We read a little bit about it uh, when we read Micah chapter 5. And you may want to have that passage there in front of you too as we're talking about Luke because there's so much in there that Luke is alluding to here. Bethlehem was the greatest rags to riches and back to rags story you've ever heard. It started out as rags, right? This was a tiny little place. Uh, Micah refers to it as um, not even being able to be named, too little to be named among the clans of Judah. That's how small this place was. And we don't have to be told what that's like because we live in Mulberry, right? We understand what it's like to live in a place that's so small that it doesn't even make it on the map most of the time. You can be watching Fox 13 or Channel 28 or whatever, and there's the weather, and they don't, all, they don't usually ever put Mulberry on the map. They never even mention Mulberry most of the time. We just get lumped up with Lakeland and Bartow and all the rest, and you kind of have to know where Mulberry's at to tell, is that storm about to hit me or not? That was Bethlehem. There was nothing that it had done to become famous at all until the day when Samuel the prophet came looking for God's king, and God directed him not to the strapping sons of Jesse, but to the little runt chasing the sheep named David, the one who no one thought would be the king. God picked him as the king. He took him from rags to riches, rags to glory. David became the greatest king of the Old Testament. The one who cleared the land of foreign domination and all the enemies so that God's people could have peace with God in the promised land. And that came out of Bethlehem. And yet, because of the disobedience of David's sons and grandsons, the house of David became a ruin. Bethlehem became just a museum. And when Jesus was born into it, Caesar owned it. And yet, God's word in Micah, spoken 700 years before, still stood. Look at Micah again, Micah chapter 5. Bethlehem, you are too little to be named, but from you shall come forth for me. This is God talking. From you shall come for me, one who is to be ruler in Israel. This will be a different kind of king, a king for me, a king that cares about God's business. A king that cares about God's rights, God's blessings. A king oriented towards God. From Bethlehem. One whose coming forth is from of old, it says, from ancient days. David was a mere human being, born and then died. Jesus Christ came into this world in a very different sense. He came from heaven to earth. He came from eternity into time. He came from the glory of his Godhead into the humility of manhood. From of old, from ancient times, to rule over the people and over the, indeed the world, it says, in a different way than every other king. It says he will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of his God, and they will dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth. This king will rule the world, and he will become their peace. 
And all of this will happen. All all of the curse will be reversed when, notice what Micah says in verse 3, when the time comes when she who is in labor has given birth in Bethlehem. And so when Luke says, it just so happened that Mary and Joseph were staying over in Bethlehem, that the labor pains began to fall on Mary. Jesus was born there. Why? He is that king. Different than all the other kings. Caesar taxed without sharing the blessing. Jesus, the king, the one Micah talks about, shares the blessing without taxing. Because he takes the blessing from heaven, from ancient, from of, from of old, from eternity, and he brings it down into the world and gives it as a gift. To every person who repents and believes in Jesus, he gives it as a gift. The Bible says that believers become not just subjects of the King Jesus, we become married to, queen, to King Jesus. We become the queen. Don't you know that? The Bible says that the church is the bride of Christ, united to him even deeper than a husband is united to the wife. This coming May, there's going to be a, in England, there's going to be a coronation service for Charles. He's already the king, but there's going to be an official service in May. At that service, his wife Camilla is also going to be named the Queen of England. She is going to receive, even though she's not a part of the family, she's going to receive much honor, great honor at that service just because of her connection to Charles. Do you want to know why the Bible says when one sinner repents and turns to Jesus, heaven has a party? Because of that. Because when you repent and believe in Jesus, you become Jesus' wedded wife. (laughs) You become one with him. The honor and glory he earned and deserved as king gets bestowed upon you completely, without taxation, freely. Forever, by the way, also. Never to be lost, never to be forfeited again. What a privilege. The king born in Bethlehem in such a low estate, coming to the rags, is going to make it riches again. And he's going to take those riches and bestow them without end on his people. Grace upon grace upon grace. And one day, glory upon glory upon glory. The greatest question this morning is, what have you done with God's king? Because there's only two options with this king of Bethlehem. Either you marry him or you remain his enemy. And one day, y'all, there's going to be a great coronation day. Have y'all heard about it? The coronation day? The day of Jesus' return? The day when every person on this earth is going to have to bow before King Jesus? And his glory is going to be so manifest, everyone's going to wonder why they didn't see it before. And on that day, every one of us will either, A, be married to Jesus... Or opposed to Jesus. The difference between the two is repentance and faith. If you repent, turn from your sins, and believe in Jesus, you become married to him. If you refuse to do so, you remain in rebellion against the king. 
and you're not guaranteed a single moment more in your life to get it right, it's best to get it right right now. Because the king born in Bethlehem came to restore God's reign in the world and to deliver God's riches onto people who didn't deserve it. All blessing with no taxation. Isn't that good? Now lastly, not only do we see a world taxed and a ruler from Bethlehem, but we also see here a baby in a manger. This is certainly not the least thing we see. This is probably the most famous thing from the story. Uh, Look at verse 7. Mary gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths. Now, so far, so good, right? So far, so normal. This same activity is happening right now at Lakeland Regional Hospital for somebody. They're giving birth to a son or daughter, and they're wrapping them in swaddling cloths. Very normal. It's the second half of the verse where all normalcy gets absolutely shot. Because it says she laid her newborn son in a manger. What is a manger? Kids, what's a manger? You can say it out loud. Something with hay in it, yes. Not made out of hay, but it's got hay in it. Because, you know what it is? It's a feeding trough. It's the big, long bowl that all the farm animals eat out of. It's the place where the donkey snout goes. And the pig snout and the cow snout. (laughs) Animal slobber. Moms. Is that any place to put a newborn baby? Would you put your newborn baby there? I mean, we're looking for cribs out of the pottery barn, but not the barn, right? (laughs) When our babies are born. Let the reader understand. This came straight out of the barn. Why would she do that? Luke tells us, right? Because there was no place for them in the inn. She did it because she had to. That was all she had to put him in. Now, we shouldn't speculate here. Uh, we, you know, oftentimes on Christmas we throw this innkeeper, poor innkeeper, under the bus. And, you know, we we make up the story that he was just a cold-hearted miser and kind of an Ebenezer Scrooge. We don't know that. Uh, Very likely, uh, this was the only inn in Bethlehem. Bethlehem was a small town. Uh, It says, after all, the inn, as if, like, that's the only one. It's full. It probably didn't take much to fill it up. And everybody's in town to fill out their census forms. And so, you know, kind of makes sense that when they came to get a room, there was no more room. And it's likely that the innkeeper probably had a little bit of compassion and said, you know, I don't have a room, but there is the room on the back of the inn where we put all the animals that everybody rode in on, and they're eating and they're laying down for the night. It's out of the elements. It's covered. Why don't you go in there? I'll give that to you. 
It's likely that was the scenario. And there they are, sitting in that stable, that place where they would keep the animals. And the only thing she could find, the mother of our Lord, the only thing she could find to put our Lord in was a manger. What in the world is God trying to communicate to us? Be humble. He's trying to communicate how much he values humility. He didn't choose a palace. He didn't even choose a hospital. He didn't choose a nice crib. He chose a stable and a manger. This set a pattern that would be true throughout Jesus' life. Given the choice between getting glory for himself and waiting on God to give it to him, Jesus every time chose waiting on God to give it to him. There were times people tried to declare him king right away. Hey, we want to make you king right now. And Jesus, it said, just went away and hid. He didn't want anything of it, not a single part of it, because he knew they did not understand what kind of king he needed to be. And instead, he chose to be a wandering teacher who didn't have a place to lay his head half the time, a wandering teacher who depended upon a group of men and women following him to feed him and keep you know, him you know, living. And at the end of his life, when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane, struggling with his father in prayer, he chose the cross as his final resting place. Isn't that amazing? The, the, the life that began in a manger ended on a cross. That ought to teach you something. And yet the one who chose manger, cross, homelessness, poverty, weakness, was also the one whom God in his timing exalted to the highest place in the universe. Lesson. Jesus doesn't just by his humility save us from our sins. He also shows us how we ought to live too. He shows us the kind of life we ought to live as Christians. Not exalting ourselves, not wanting great things for ourselves and trying to chase them down feverishly all the time, but willingly taking the low place in order to serve other people. Willingly taking the low place in order to bring glory to God rather than to ourselves. Jesus, if he comes into your life, actually brings a, almost like a, like a complete shift in your thinking about life. It's a little bit like when you're at home and say you have like a, a thing you're trying to repair at the house and you're working on it and you're working for an hour and you're, you've been trying the same thing over and over and it's just not working and you're, you're mumbling and maybe you're saying some non-churchy words. You're angry. And somebody comes up from the house, some other person, and they say, what are you doing? And you give them a few words. And they say, oh, why are you doing it that way? Let me see it. And they do it a different way, and immediately it works. Has that ever happened to you? That's humbling. Is it not? It's also mind shifting. Wow, I've been trying the same thing over and over, and it hadn't been working for an hour. No wonder I'm frustrated. All I had to do was see it from a different angle and do it in a slightly different way, and boom, it worked. It's as if through the birth of Jesus, God is communicating that same thing to the world. World of mine that I made, you've been trying generation after generation to make yourself great by being great. 
and it ain't never worked. Not one time. Caesar Augustus, who thought he was great, and everybody else thought he was. In fact, y'all, he thought he was so great. Caesar Augustus uh, actually wrote his own eulogy before he died. Like he, he wrote his own tribute to himself. We still got it. And it is a grocery list of all the things he thinks he did that were wonderful so that everybody would praise him after he died. Uh, it is very awkward. It's like reading someone's Facebook post that they should not have posted. Very awkward. And yet, guess what? Caesar tried to make him great. Guess where Caesar's at right now? Caesar is dust. Nothing more. Dust. And so with you and so with me. We try to make ourselves great and it ends in dust. And we keep trying and we're frustrated that it ends in dust. And we can't believe it. How in the world can it be that it ends in dust? I tried so hard. And God says, why don't you try it this way? Look at my son. He began in a manger in Bethlehem with an unwed, pregnant teenage mother. And he ended it on a cross in a tomb, by the way, that was borrowed because he couldn't afford one. And yet, where's Jesus today? He ain't dust. He's full of glory. There's some important lessons here, right? I hope you hear it this morning. Those of us who realize that Jesus, the Son of God, came to pay our tax. The taxes we owed because of our sin, we could never pay it, but he came to pay it. So that he as king could bless us without taxation. If that's true, then what sort of people ought we to be in our lives? Should there be any such thing as a Christian snob? No. J.R. Packer doesn't think so. He says that in his book, Knowing God, which is a great book, by the way. He says this, We talk glibly about the Christmas spirit, but we rarely mean by that any more than just sentimental jollity on a family basis, jingle bells and all the rest, right? But he says it ought to mean the reproducing in human lives the temper of him who for our sakes became poor at the first Christmas. The Christmas spirit itself ought to be the mark of every Christian all year round. It is to our shame and disgrace today that so many Christians go through this world in the spirit of the priest and the Levite in our Lord's parable, seeing human needs all around them, but passing by on the other side. This is not the Christmas spirit. There is no such thing or should be no such thing as a Christian snob. For the Christmas spirit is the spirit of those who, like their master, live their whole lives, catch this, live their whole lives on the principle of making themselves poor. Spending and being spent to enrich their fellow humans, giving time, trouble, care, and concern to do good to others in whatever way there seems need.
don't let the Christmas story and the familiarity of it numb you and blind you to the revolutionary character of it. <laughs> it's, a, it's, a, it's revolutionary, the way that God chose his son to be born. This morning, it can revolutionize your eternity if you'll believe in Jesus and be united to him. And it can also revolutionize the way you live now by teaching you the way up is down. Amen.